All right, so there are different holidays, and I would say the top three are, are Easter. What are the other two? Christmas and Thanksgiving. Stop it. Thanksgiving. Or Halloween out there, some kid. All right, so... <laughs> All right. So in my in my world, when I look at the holidays, I go, you know what Easter got? Easter got the short the short straw, right? When you think about Easter, for the event it actually represents, it's amazing what a poor job we 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 do with it. I mean, if you think about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving rules. Just think about the day for a moment. The food alone, right? We're talking about a turkey dinner with mashed potatoes and stuffing, two things not that great for you at the same time, right there on the plate, some kind of vegetable, right? And, and the whole family's gathered together. And then after we eat to the point we can't eat anymore, we watch football, right? And then they call us in for pie at the because you know, we think we've worked it down far enough. to. to but then you come to, you come to Easter, and it's just a letdown, right? <laughs> Spiraled ham, moms are like, don't say that. Spiral the hams, you know, some potatoes that we were, you know, too cheap to mash. And then there's, there's the green beans. And then to top it off, and maybe this isn't happening so much anymore, but it's, it's what's been stuck in my mind, is pastel-colored mush, marshmallow jello <laughs> fluff. And if you really want to ruin it right, you add coconut to it. And... Um, <laughs> How many of you, you've eaten that? You've eaten that before? Yeah, a bunch of us, yeah. Okay, now Christmas, Christmas has got to be the, that's the big one in my, in, I mean, you know, we cut down a tree and we drag it into our homes and we stick lights and decorations on it and then we put presents that actually matter under the, you know, it's not like the token gifts. This is where moms and dad take out loans to fund the kids and, you know, give them that thing that they want because, oh no, it's Christmas. It wouldn't be Christmas unless you get exactly what you want. And it doesn't last a day. It's a whole season. It's three months of cookies, you know, that we eat together and enjoy together. And then you come to Easter and it's not a big long season. And, and when it comes to, you know, the fun, we get peeps. I mean, <laughs> does anything say lame like peeps? And I know there's a few of you, what, peeps are my favorite. I, <laughs> I get it, and I just feel pity. Um, so here's the point. When, in our culture, in this Western society, Easter is an understated holiday. It's like the back-of-the-line holiday even though it represents the most important thing, if it's true, if it's true, the most important event that ever took place on the face of this planet. You know, it outdoes the pilgrims. It outdoes Bethlehem. It is an empty grave. And that's why we're gathered together today. And, and, and it's sad that we just take it so short and don't make a bigger deal out of it in, in my world anyway. So I want, what I want to do is I want to remind you today of what, it says about Easter in the Bible, what Easter actually is, and then I'm going to talk about some implications. That's where we're really going to spend the majority of our time, some implications of, Christ, of Easter Christmas. Easter, if it's true. So Matthew 28 says this, uh, verses 1 through 9. It says, early on Sunday morning. Now, we've got to go back a moment. Let me pause there because I'm about to go. So we, gotta, we can't do Easter without doing Good Friday. So on Friday, Jesus was crucified on a cross, and he died for us. Right, And then the disciples are lost and confused. Every follower thinks this is it. It's all over. Saturday is a very down day for all of them. And then we jump to early on Sunday. So early on Sunday morning, as a new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. There were actually more women than that. 
And, and there was a couple of Marys. There was probably more Marys, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James. Mary is a very popular name. If you're Catholic, you already know this, that Mary is number one uh, for names. So they went out to the tomb. Why did they go to the tomb? Anybody know? They went out to take care of the body because Jesus died on Friday late in the day. At sunset, Sabbath starts. They can't do any work. They can't touch a dead body after Sabbath starts. It would make them unclean from a... a um, Jewish standpoint. So they have to get it done quick. So they take the body down, they quickly wrap it, but it wasn't the women who took care of that body. It was two, two men. One was Joseph of Arimathea who had a grave that he lent to Jesus. He, it, he thought he was giving it to him, but it was just a loan, right? So he gave it to him and, and put it, the body in there. And the other person that helped him do it, if you read John, I think it's chapter 19, it says it, it was Nicodemus. The same guy, if you know your Bibles, the same guy who met Jesus late at night and he was a Pharisee. Both of those guys were on the high council. There were followers of Jesus who sat in the meeting where they decided that Jesus should die. But they, were, you know, they weren't able to speak up. They weren't able to control what was taking place there. So the women on Sunday morning, remember this, this is a rush job. They had 75 pounds of spices and burial herbs. They put it on Jesus, the, the men did. They wrapped him in a cloth and they put him in the grave and they go, wow, it's almost time for the Sabbath and off they go. The women come back early Sunday morning after the Sabbath is over to redo the body because men don't do anything right the first time, <laughs> right? So after I make the bed, what does my wife do? You know, she comes in and remakes it. So it's kind of that sort of thing, all right? So that's why they're there. But as they're there, suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and he sat on it. And if you can visualize that, I thought, Wow, how awesome would it be to be that angel? Right? You roll away the stone and then you go, yeah, all right, let's watch this. And you sit down on top of the stone and he sits on it. His face shone like lightning. This is still the angel. His clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear as they saw him and they fell into a dead faint, which is why the guards didn't do anything to stop all the proceedings taking place. They were all passed out. They put to sleep for a little while. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid. He said, I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead just as he said would happen, just as he said would happen, just as he predicted. Now, come and see where his body was lying. And it doesn't go into it in this particular uh, passage, but in the other Gospels we find out that, that the burial clothes they've had were all folded up and placed nice and neat, like, thank you very much, I don't need these right? And then the room is emptied out. And now the angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with joy. Have you felt both of those things at one time before where, you know what, I'm so excited, but this scares me to death. Usually people think of that like before a roller coaster. I'm really excited to do this, but I am scared to death. Only multiply that out by death and life, right? They were filled with great joy and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them and they recognized him and they ran to him and they grasped his feet, which means they were on the ground and they worshiped him. Right? Now, that story that we just read, I heard every Easter read to me just like we kind of did together now. And the thought that I had, because I didn't always believe it, the thought that I had was if it's true, if this story is true, if this event actually took place, is there anything greater than Easter? 
Is there anything more significant, more important than Easter? And it has implications if it's true. Now, let me be very respectful. I know, and I've already said this, that we're all here maybe for different reasons. Some of us are here because we believe it, we buy into it, we, we worship God, we follow Jesus. Some of us are here just to keep someone else happy. I'm so glad that you're keeping that person happy today. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of us. And some of us here, are we're inquisitive. I just want to go and find out what's going on. So I'm going to talk about the implications if it's true, because no matter where we are in our faith or lack of faith, I think these implications will hold for us if it actually happened. And that's going to be the key question. So the Easter implications or implications of the resurrection, for me personally, if it's true, I want to know more. I want to know more. Because if a guy can predict his death ahead of time, which we all can, you know, I will die if I live long enough, right? If I live long enough, I'll die someday. But if a guy can predict his death and a timetable to come back from the dead, in three days, I'm going to rise again, right? Well, if that, I want to listen to that guy. I want to know that guy. That's good enough for me to check him out more. So let me talk to you just a little bit to show you because some people go, well, did he really predict his death? Well, let me answer that question. He really did, at least according to the people who followed him closely, people who died because they followed him. So let's start with John, the way John talks about it. So John chapter 2, the context is this. Jesus uh, has been to the, to the temple and the temple courts, and he sees people buying and selling things in the temple courts, right outside of the place of worship. And in fact, it is a place of worship. And they're selling sacrificial items to, to people who have journeyed in for a holiday. So they've got sheep and birds and different animals that are going to be sacrificed. And what they did is because they came so far away, they couldn't bring their own animals. They're buying one there. They jacked up the prices. So they're profiting from worship. And Jesus throws a fit. He's flipping over tables. He takes a whip and bangs it around. He's yelling and screaming at people. And guess what? The people who were profiting didn't like it. And the Jewish leaders who were in on it probably didn't like it. So they confront Jesus, and here's how it goes. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders demanded, what, gave, what, are you, what are you doing? If God gave you the authority to do this, to show your temper like this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Show us that you have this kind of authority. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Right, you're standing in the court. The temple is right there, which most of us can't picture in our minds. What they exclaimed it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you can rebuild it in three days. Let me give you a quick temple history. Okay, the, the first temple was built by Solomon. His dad arranged for the whole thing, financed the whole thing. When David died, Solomon built the temple and they worshiped there. And then that temple got remodeled once. And that temple was destroyed and King Herod built a new temple. Only when Herod built something, he would always build it five times bigger five times better. That was, he wanted, Herod not just building the temple for the honor of God, he was doing it for the honor of himself. So when he built the temple, he built it huge. And it's what they call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today is the grounds that it was on and the court was on. Now, when he built it, he used stones and what the, the leaders were hearing, Jesus say, destroy this temple, they were thinking of the physical temple. So what would that have looked like? Well, the stones that remain today because it was destroyed in 70 A.D., but we still have some buildings and, and the wall around were not destroyed. The, the stones that we see today built, these are from King Herod's day. The cornerstones, and there's a whole bunch of these, so there's just some of them, 
were seven feet, ten inches, like the width. And the length was 39 feet, four, almost 40 feet, and almost four feet tall. It weighed 80 tons. And I'm afraid that, I'm afraid that if you haven't been there, you can't see how huge. And now these were all chiseled out by hand and then all transported. And they were all tapered. They fit together perfectly. And one stone would run the long way and then they would do the next course above it the other directions. So there was crisscrossing and it was incredibly strong, incredibly large, and it took 46 years to build it. And John says, you know what? When Jesus said that, when he said this temple, he actually meant his own body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his own body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So what was Jesus doing? He was sort of cryptically saying, I'm going to die. This temple's going to be destroyed. You're going to do it. But three days later, I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to come back. Nobody understood it at the time. The disciples are open-handed about that. But the puzzle pieces started to fit afterwards. Let me take you to another passage where Jesus kind of explains what's going to take place. Matthew 16. Jesus turns to his disciples and he's gaining popularity. He says, hey guys, just what do the polls say? Who, who are people saying that I am? And they go, wow, Jesus, there are some strange theories out there. Some people think you're the prophet Elijah. Some people think you're John the Baptist reincarnated, which is sort of weird because you were already alive when John the Baptist died. We don't understand about it. Some people are saying that. Some people are saying you're one of the other prophets from the past. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, guys, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, the most outspoken of the disciples, looks at him and says, you know what we think? You know what I think? I think, I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, man, that is awesome. Blessed are you. Because you didn't figure this out in your own. I know you think you did. I know you feel like the puzzle pieces came together in your own. But God has revealed this to you. And after he said that to them, he's, the Bible says, then he warned, he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the disciples. He's affirming it. Yep, that's who I am. That's who I really am. I'm not John, John the Baptist. No, I'm not Elijah. I'm not one of the other prophets. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. And then, from then on, Matthew says, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. These bad things are going to take place. It's going to happen to me. He would be killed. He told them he would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. He's starting to have these open and very honest conversations with just a few, just the disciples. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. By the way, if you ever think Peter is a coward, to reprimand Jesus, hey, Jesus, can I just tell you, don't talk like that, man. What's wrong with you? That's what Peter was doing. He said, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. I won't let it happen is the implication. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. So this is kind of amazing, isn't it? Two minutes ago. Blessed are you, Peter. The Lord's revealed this to you. Next moment, get behind me, Satan. Peter's going, I don't know who I am. I'm schizophrenic. This is difficult to deal with. <laughs> am I Satan or is the Lord speaking to me? And he said, here's the problem. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Yes, God revealed to you who I am, but you don't understand what's going to take place. And you're bothered by it. Now let me take you to John 10. 10 and 11. So 
if you read through John, I'll let you do it on your own, Jesus is teaching, and he's talking about good shepherding. And it's an analogy for who he is. He is the good shepherd. He talks about things like he knows his sheep, and the sheep hear his voice, and they recognize his voice. And then in verse 10, he says this, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, when, when most of us read that, we think that's Satan. And it is his agenda, but I think Jesus was actually talking about people who were false teachers. And their teaching was going to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and yeah, maybe Satan's behind the whole thing, but I think he was still speaking about false teachers. Instead, he says, my purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. Isn't that good news? Jesus came. That God's agenda, God's dream for us, what God wants for us, is a rich and satisfying life. That's not what I grew up thinking. I, th- I grew up thinking that God wanted to ruin my life. That one thing God was against, anybody having fun anywhere, anytime, God would be against it. But instead, Jesus goes, no, no, it's the opposite. I'm here. I want to give you a rich life, a meaningful life, the life you were created for. I am the good shepherd. And listen to this. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Do you know how wrong that is? That's not what good shepherds do. Good shepherds are businessmen. Good shepherds raise their sheep, and maybe they love their sheep and care for their sheep and take care of their sheep. But in the end, they either butchered them right, or keep on taking the wool from them. They're there, for, they're there for the shepherd's pleasure. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm the good shepherd, and I sacrifice my life for the sheep. It's kind of turned upside down. But he's still saying, I am going to sacrifice my life for my sheep, which is all of us. It's all of us together. It's all of us individually. Jesus says, I'm going to sacrifice my life for you. And I keep thinking, if a guy can predict his death and resurrection, if it's true, that guy gets my attention. But if he didn't raise from the dead and he said he was going to, then Jesus is just another dead guy. Right? Like all the other religions. Uh, Most religions have some guy who's sort of the founder. And for all other religions, you can go to their grave and you could dig up their bodies pretty much. Jesus, first of all, you've got to find his grave and there is one identified. Maybe it's the right one, maybe it's not. Right? It is empty, but it stays empty. You cannot find a grave, a full grave for Jesus because he didn't stay dead. I want to know more. If that's true, I want to know what that guy said, what that guy taught. That guy has to be worth investigating if it's true. If it might be true, we should investigate him. That's the first implication. Let me take you to the second implication of Easter for me. I can stop feeling guilty. I can stop feeling guilty. You know, there's this thing that the Jews were under, and we, we think of it, we almost kind of put it down a little bit. They were under this thing called the law, right? And if you're a scholar at all, you know, or, or been to church a lot, you know they were under the Old Testament law, a lot of rules, not just the Ten Commandments, but even more rules on top of that. But the truth is, we're all under the law. We're all under the laws we understand it. All of you have things that you go, well, that's right to do, and no, those things are wrong to do. You might be making your own law up, but it'll probably reflect pretty much God's values. Most of us have laws that reflect God's values because we're made in his image. We're made like him. We have a sense inside of us of what's right and wrong. And when we do wrong things, we at least feel some shame or guilt or something about it. But if Jesus actually came back from the dead, I get to stop feeling guilty. You've probably seen this kind of image before. This is how the kind of imagery Christians use to say, hey, there's Jesus on the cross. He died for, for us, for our sins, we'll say. 
and, and it's hard to understand. It's, there's something really big taking place. That's, we say it casually, but none of us really understand it. I want to show you another picture, but if you're sensitive to blood and to gore, close your eyes, because I'm not here to offend you on Easter. All right, so close your eyes if that's you. So this is much more what it looked like. I went to, the, remember the movie The Passion? Uh, how brutal that was. Some of you saw it, how brutal it was. I saw it one time. I saw it one time. And I'm going to switch pictures. I couldn't, you can open your eyes again. I couldn't, you are now hypnotized. No, um, you're not. <laughs> I couldn't take the passion. It was too real. It was too bloody. It was too, I stayed through the whole thing one time. And then I said, I'm never going to watch that again. Because my logic was, if the disciples only had to see it once, then I only have to see it once. And I, and I won't see it again. I don't, I don't, I don't need it again. But it was revealing to me. It did show me this wasn't just hanging on a cross tied by ropes. and It was brutal. He was beaten. He bled. He was whipped front and back. Blood was everywhere. And he died on the cross. And the Bible says for our sin. Well, where does it say that? Well, Peter wrote that. Peter, the one who, blessed are you, Peter. Later on, he wrote this. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 he, Jesus, personally carried, personally carried our sins in his body on the cross that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. In other words, live for God instead of living for ourselves. By his wounds, you, we, are healed. Right? And that's, that's what took place on the cross. Again, I don't even understand it, but, but this is what Peter said. He paid the price for our sin. Later on, in chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but, and he's sure to bring this up, he was raised to life by the Spirit. See, here's the thing. When we show people the cross, some of us get overwhelmed with guilt, especially if we were raised in certain churches where we're taught that, and it's banging into us. Jesus died for you. Don't you feel bad about that? Jesus died for your sin. And every time we sin, some of us, we feel this wave of guilt like we added more pain to the cross for Jesus because he had to suffer enough to pay for our sins. But if he's raised from the dead, he's not on the cross anymore. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't die on the cross to make us feel guilty. He's not dying on the cross anymore. Right? He died on the cross so we could experience forgiveness, so we could experience the love of God. It's not just feeling it, but it's experiencing it and knowing it. He paid for our sins. He died so we don't have to die the eternal death. Right? On the cross, near the end, he shouted up to heaven, it is finished. And in the Greek, which I don't expect you to know because I don't know it either, he says, it's finished. In the Greek, the word that's used is a word that talks more like a, a word that would get used in a financial transaction, like it is paid for. This is the last penny. Here you go. That last mortgage payment, right? When you make your last mortgage payment, some of you have homes, you should shout out, it is finished, right? And then you can start rebuilding your house because it's so old and you have to fix it. <laughs> but you're not going to give the bank another dime, are you? They've had enough of your money. This, this mortgage company you pay. It is finished. And Jesus says that. And then he lifts the spirit and says, I give you my spirit, God. And then he dies. 
And then he comes back to life, which means he's not on the cross anymore. You don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to feel guilty. We sin, but guess what? Every time we sin, Jesus goes, I already paid for. Took care of that. It's done. I've already paid for the power of, of sin and the power of death to be defeated. It's over. And that doesn't mean we go out and sin all we want to. Oh, Jesus paid for this. I can do what I want. No, of course not. That wouldn't be honoring to God at all. We know what's in our hearts, the way we should live and try to live that way. But we don't have to feel guilty. And we don't have to feel like we're killing Jesus as, as we sin. And again, some of you are going to relate to that and some of you are going to go, I don't even know what you're talking about. I never feel guilty. All right, I get it. The third implication is that the finality of death is temporary. Maybe this is the biggest one. So let me just tell you, I'm in a season of first right now. And you've been in one before at some point in time. It's like everything is, this is the first time this way. So after I got married, Lori and I, you know, we went to a hotel and I w- went up to the register and I said, Mr. and Mrs. Mathers, you know, first time I've ever said that, you know, to register into a hotel. We went into an, our, our apartment. First time I ever said our apartment, we get to live, live here. When we had a child, everything was the first. This is the first Labor Day and Memorial Day with our child and the first birthday, that was a really big deal, right? Those are the joyous ones. There's some other seasons of first that aren't so happy. My dad passed away in February this year. And so very keenly, I'm kind of aware that like right now, this is the first Easter that I can't call my dad up and say, dad, dog, how's it going? Great. Are you teaching this weekend? Of course. Right? What are you going to say? And then I'll go through the outline of the message. And then he'll tell me how I should have said it. <laughs> right? I can't text him. I can't write him. You know, this is, this is the first Easter. We're going to go to the cabin this summer. My dad's not going to be there. My dad's at the cabin my whole life. Right? This will be the first time he's not there because he's gone. I find myself living throughout a week, and every so often I'll think, wow, my dad's gone. I'm not, I'm fine. I'm fine. You don't, you know, yes, there's a morning, but I'm, I'm good. But there's still a sense of every so often it blindsides you. Not, I don't, I'm not falling apart, but I go, okay, he's gone. He's really gone. And that's the season that I'm in. But here's the deal. There is a finality to it. He's gone. He'll always be gone. I'll never have another Easter with him. He won't be at the cabin again. That's all true and it's final. But it's temporary. Which seems like, how can both be true? It's final, but it's temporary. This is the resurrection because my dad was a follower of Christ because I know that I'll see him what we call heaven. I don't even know what that is. But I know that he's not going to stay dead because Jesus was the first and we to follow. He's defeated death. He's brought forgiveness to us. And I have eternity to look forward to with my dad. Now, the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, was starting to get messed up in this area. Enough time had gone by since Jesus' death and resurrection that some of them were going, really? We believe that? That seems like a really big thing to believe. And Paul almost loses a gasket, right? I mean, blows a gasket. Because he's, he's like, are you kidding me? This is it. This is the cornerstone of our faith. And here's what he writes to them. He says, and if Christ has not been raised then your faith is useless. Why are you getting together? Why are you at church? Your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. You should start feeling guilty again. You know, a case of the guilty is for everybody. 
who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if your hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. We're just fools. And we're not fools for Christ in a God-honoring way. We're just fools because we believe something that's not true. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first of the great harvest of all who have died, which I'm a part of, which my dad is a part of, my mom was a part of. And the finality of death is only temporary. It's only temporary. When you believe that, if the resurrection is true, it brings something that without, I don't know that you can really ultimately experience. And it's a small word called hope. And so I grieve for my father, but I grieve with hope. I grieve not with some pie in the sky hope. I grieve with hope because of what Christ has done and he came and it, the puzzle pieces fit. And I know it in my soul. And these are the implications for me of the resurrection. If it really happened, if a guy really did predict his death and then three days later come back like he said he would, his resurrection as well, if he really did that, then I want to know more. And I can stop feeling guilty even when I mess up and screw up, even when I do it on purpose. And the finality of death, which is the great eraser of everything that we think matters in this world, right? Because if death really is the end, Someday it's going to wipe out the meaning of all of humanity. No matter what we do, no matter how big we get, it will wipe it out. Nothing will matter because we'll all be dead. But the finality of death is only temporary. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, Doug, I, I don't know what I believe about this. Well, I think the safest start is by checking out Jesus. Find out what he taught, what he said, who he is. And we just finished a teaching series called Checking Out Jesus. So I'm going to invite you not, yeah, I mean, of course we want you to come back to church. But you can go online. If you go to, remember the name of this church, Crosswinds Church. Then put a .com behind it, crosswindschurch.com. You go to that website, click on messages, and you can listen to all the messages because we walked through what did the original writers, the people who hung out with Jesus, say about Jesus? What did they say he taught? And what did they say he, he did? If you want to wrestle a little bit more with specifically, can you believe in the resurrection, there's a book called The Case for Easter. You can get it on Amazon. The Case for Easter is by Lee Strobel. It's not a big, hard book. Lee writes beautifully and simply that we can all understand. I encourage you to read that. He was an atheist. He was a, a reporter for the for Chicago Tribune, and he became a follower of Christ after research, and he shares some of the research that he did with us. So I just want to if you're on that outside looking in on faith and you're not sure what to believe, I encourage you to check out Jesus and make your decision from that. And if you're thinking about the resurrection, if it's true, well, how, do I, how can I believe that? Then I encourage you to check out the case for Easter, two resources. If you're here today, though, and you go, you know what the truth is, Doug? I, I do believe this. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in Jesus. I believe, in, I don't know if you got it from grandma or going to church, came to it on your own. If you do believe in it and you go but i've been keeping god at a distance because i'm afraid he's going to ruin my life i invite you to invite him in to lay it down and to begin to follow him live out what you believe right and if you're going to do that then i want to encourage you i mean how to do that i think you just tell god god i want i want to live in your forgiveness 
Thank you for what you did in the cross. And God, I want to follow you. I'm not going to keep you at a distance anymore. I'm going to pursue you. And you can use me any way you want. And if you pray that kind of prayer, that's what, by the way, that's how you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. If you do that, then I want to encourage you to do two things. One is, we have some Bibles. We'll just give you one. Some of you signed up for Bibles last week. They're there. Go ahead and get them. And if you're really doing it, you can also get baptized next week. We've got room for you. You can sign up for that. We can meet and talk about that if you're interested. Okay, so the week after baptisms, I want to invite everybody to come back because we're going to have a new series called Under Grace. This law that I told you about that we live under, all of us live under it, God says, hey, I don't want you living under the law. I want you to learn how to live under grace. So we're going to do that together. Now here's how we're going to finish the morning out. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand up and sing a song together. So let's pray, and then we'll get to it. God, I'm just going to be quiet for a moment. Maybe somebody has in this room right now has your own prayer you need to pray. I'm going to get out of the way for you. God, I pray for every person in this room who's not sure what they believe. Or maybe they're sure of what they don't believe. And God, I pray that you would reach out to them in a way that they can recognize and take a step closer to you. And then God, for those of us who say, yes, it's Easter. Yes, it's the very best. Help us to take our next steps as well. And finally, Jesus, I just have to say thank you. I don't understand it, but I know you've changed my life by what you did on that cross. I get to live without feeling guilty. I get to live with hope. And I get to follow you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.